This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Play, a leading game developer providing player favorites to the most successful brands across the industry. With an award-winning multi-product portfolio of slots, live casino, bingo, virtual sports, and more, Pragmatic Play is powering up new possibilities of play through one single API. Visit pragmaticplay.com and discover your favorite every time. Uh, welcome back to the second episode of Vested Interest. Lloyd, Benji, it's great to have you guys uh, with us here today. I am uh, currently hiding in a cabin in the middle of nowhere here in Sweden. Uh, but uh, how are you doing today, Lloyd, first of all? Um, I'm doing great, Pierre. Thank you. And I will say the, uh, the, the respite from the, the uh, vigors of everyday life that you are finding for yourself, I think, is quite well deserved after uh, that fantastic conference Benji and I joined you for in Valletta a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, I thought it was an absolute success and, and one of the better uh, European conferences that I can remember attending recently. So hats off to you guys and uh, congrats on the well-deserved uh, time spent hiding in the forest in southern Sweden. Yeah, th- th- thank you for that, Lloyd. And um, I'll, I'll tell you, though, that you, you missed out on the uh, closing part today of showers. Uh, me and Benji were having quite a good time there. And uh, uh, I think uh, Benji had a good inauguration of the showers, our, our 10-year uh, anniversary of the pool party. Uh, but uh, yeah, Benji, how was your trip to uh, Malta? How was everything over there? Yeah, no, look, uh, echoing what Lloyd says, it was obviously it was a fantastic event. Uh, my first time in Malta, uh, surprisingly, just given how long I've been in the space, but my first time visiting Malta, and uh, the, the venue was spectacular. The content was terrific. Um, and it was some different faces for me, not just different from the U.S. events, which I expected, but different from some of the other European events that I've, uh, that I've attended. Um, and, and I think it was just the entire thing was really well orchestrated. And yes, to your point, uh, uh, the, the closing party, which wasn't technically part of the conference, was certainly a good time. <laughs> so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Exactly. Now. Well, say it's a chavis. What happens to the chavis stays a chavis. Let's leave it at that. And I'll talk uh, that. The, a- after that event, Benji told me that it's something that you have to do once in your life. But if you <laughs> care about your life expectancy, you might not yeah. want to do it twice or any additional times, which... Uh, of course, was meant only in the most complimentary and uh, fun-loving <laughs> yes. fashion. It, it takes a good year out of your life, I think, this uh, exactly. thing. But, it, but, but yeah, <laughs> tot- totally worth it. Uh, so guys, um, first of all, I would love to talk a little bit about a really interesting topic. I mean, obviously, um, on the European side, uh, stake.com uh, has been uh, has seen like the rise and rise in the last couple of years, and uh, obviously uh, from my from my from a North American context, uh, uh, Stake.com is known as an operator that has been operating in the um, let's say outside of the regulation um, uh, in 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 regulated markets. Um, Stake is obviously very controversial for many different reasons. Um, they, uh, their highest profile ambassador, uh, Drake, is uh, obviously one of the guys that have really kind of built this brand and brand presence in North America. Um, and they have now kind of alluded to, or Ed Craven, the CEO and the founder, has alluded to that they have a really big U.S. acquisition um, in, uh, uh, that they are currently working on at the moment. So this obviously begs the question, you know, who could that be? And I would really like to talk about this a little bit today and hear kind of you guys' opinion as well from a, from a North American context of what your opinion is on stake in general and what you think is going to happen here. I mean, 
Uh, first and foremost, obviously they have been operating in the, it's a known secret, let's say, that they have been operated uh, outside the regulation. And uh, also interesting, uh, kind of from due diligence perspective and um, being able to uh, be approved by, by regulators locally in the US, what, what all of this means. But first of all, Lloyd, um, I don't know if you, you read this story and, and uh, what do you make of it? Like, who, who could a potential target be uh, for a stake to acquire? Yeah, definitely raised eyebrows. Uh, I think it was EGR that first broke that story a, a week or so ago. Uh, and moving aside the regulatory piece of it, because that is really complicated and, and uh, you know, it, certainly a, a big question mark here. But from purely a commercial spec perspective, uh, it, of course, makes sense that stake would be interested in the U.S. market, given its size, if they can solve for the regulatory piece. Um, and I, I'd say that look, I don't have any specific inside information here whatsoever, but there are really two primary targets uh, in different categories that are at the forefront of the rumor mill uh, right now. One, I think, much more so than others. Uh, the slightly less popular target uh, stems from the fact that allegedly earlier in the year, Stake was kicking the tires on some B2B companies that would provide them with the ability to operate a game of skill DFS style product in the US. Uh, and the fact that those conversations happened, I think, has led to potential rumors that maybe they would acquire a DFS or DFS plus company, whatever you want to call it. And it would seem to me that the only three that would be large enough to warrant the type of commentary that we're seeing would be prize picks, underdog and sleeper. Uh, and we'll get Benji's thoughts on this in a moment. I have a really, really hard time seeing Adam at prize picks or Jeremy at underdog uh, selling right now. And so if it were a DFS target, uh, sleeper feels like, you know, potentially the highest probability. But I'd say the uh, the target and the strategy at the forefront of the rumor mill is supposing that Stake will try to buy an operator that has online casino and online sportsbook technology as well as market access. And from a size and traction and market access perspective, Rush Street Interactive seems to be the most logical target. Uh, and again, the one that is what everyone seems to be whispering uh, among people who whisper about these things. So I, I have no idea. I don't know if any such acquisition will take place. Uh, it is beyond my expertise to understand exactly how the regulatory uh, and licensing process would work. But uh, something in the fantasy space like Sleeper or perhaps more, pro more likely something in the real money space like Rush Street Interactive uh, seem to be eligible and, and plausible uh, targets for stake to enter the U.S. through. Right, Bundy, what's your thought there? So, yeah, look, I mean, uh, uh, my commentary on, on the fantasy piece, and I, I have heard those rumors as well, uh, I agree with you that Underdog, I think, is pretty much a non-starter in the sense that they're kind of just kind of getting going in their journey as it pertains to the migration to the sportsbook piece. And uh, they're, they're still in early days uh, as it pertains to that process. So I'd be pretty surprised if they were a, a viable target. I'd be less shocked if it were prize picks as a target on the fantasy side. Again, I don't think it's fantasy altogether. I think it's online sportsbook, and the rumor mill is exactly that, that it would be Rush Street that would be the ones uh, most likely to be embarking in these types of conversations. It could have been points bet until more recently, but they're now off the table. Um, so so echoing what you would say as it pertains to, to, to the, the sportsbook piece, on the fantasy side, if in fact that were route they were going down, Sleeper would be the most likely but look, you look at where Prize Picks is at. Um, obviously, they're having massive success right now. But at some point, they want to achieve an exit type ROI for their for their investors and for their stakeholders and shareholders. Um, and uh, 
with some of the headwinds in fantasy right now in the U.S., you know, one could surmise that it might not be so easy to achieve as such. And obviously, they're taking a lot of steps right now at Prize Picks to bring on board some people that can help with lobbying efforts as they gear up for uh, for for that piece of the battle in terms of trying to defend their turf as it pertains to what they do as a company. But I would be less surprised if it was them than you would be. That's interesting that uh, the rumor mill is saying RSI because uh, you know from a layman point of view, just looking at face value here, uh, I would uh, I would assume that uh, Pen would be a more likely acquisition target due to the Barstool brand, which is, seems to be very on-brand for stake, let's say, with a very controversial uh, you know, CEO there and Dave Portnoy and, and a brand that is very focused on content production and, and uh, kind of speaking uh, to a different, um, uh, like marketing themselves in a very different way than the traditional sports bit, let's say, which is very kind of on-brand for, for stake. Why, why wouldn't, um, why wouldn't uh, Penn be there, like obvious choice here, uh, Lloyd? Uh, first of all, that's most likely just going to be a, an even bigger uh, acquisition to, to swallow than, than an RSI. Uh, I think your points are well taken. Certainly, it seems like the combination of the stake.com name and Dave Portnoy present a seriously challenging you know, regulatory and licensing process. Uh, my only other real comment would be that the only way that would make sense is if they specifically, in my view, spun off and acquired Pen Interactive Ventures, which is where the digital and online operation exists. I have a really hard time imagining Stake acquiring Pen's retail brick and mortar business that is so far divorced from their core competency, let alone the size of the business that I think they could ingest. Uh, but yeah, I, I suppose uh, you know spinning off the digital business and, and Stake acquiring that is not out of the realm of possibility. I think. Penn is just finishing their migration over to all the scores technology and finishing some of their, you know, licensing and, and regulation tasks on their own. And so it it feels a little like uh, maybe not the perfect time for where they are on their journey. Uh, but I do recognize some of those thematic crossovers or, or synergies between the sort of streamer influencer mobile focus of, of getting people to, to play. Right. So th- uh, yeah, Bender, yeah I, I, I guess my comment there is, that I, I, look, it's, it's certainly uh, possible that that pen could be a, a target accordingly. But, uh, you know, you look in terms of the points bet uh, situation and they were in a position where they more or less had to do something because of their cash position. You know, RSI isn't in the exact same court, but uh, they're not in as strong a cash position as pen would be. So it would just be an easier mountain to climb to try and get something done with an RSI than it would be with a pen. Right, right, right. Makes sense. Are there other operators that could be in the crosshairs uh, here for for a stake? Are there other kind of like uh, non, say like the outside of the big four uh, that uh, that could be a potential target for a stake? Because it seems like the industry is consolidating more and more. There are few and few operators with multiple licenses so on and so forth. So it seems like there isn't really that many targets if you want to acquire uh, a solid sports book uh, t- today, Bundy. I mean. Uh, potentially parks and the only bet parks. And the only reason I say that is because there have been murmurings of uh, bet parks being in acquisition talks uh, over the last six months to a year. So we know that they're, they're game to have conversations that make sense. You know, I don't know if that's anywhere near as sizable as any of the other two that you just mentioned, but uh, 
you know, I can certainly see some form of MA activity involving them, and they are a reasonable size player, obviously a tier two to tier three, but uh, there's still some size and scope there, albeit more regional. Yeah, I would add to that same category, potentially, you know, someone like PlayUp, who seems to be struggling to find a home, even maybe a win bet, which has been a relative underperformer. Uh, none of these companies bring the uh, amount of vertical integration and market access that an RSI would bring. Uh, it feels like if your goal is to maximize state licenses and proprietary technology that you own and use to operate your sportsbook and casino per dollar spent, uh, that RSI would be the obvious choice. And I think that's part of why they are at the forefront. I don't know how many states uh, bet parks has market access in exactly, but I know it is far fewer, certainly, uh, than someone like Rush Street. Just to throw in a curveball here as well. I mean, uh, one household um, online sports betting and online gambling uh, operator here in Europe is uh, Kindred, uh, which is one of the major operators here. And they also hold licenses in uh, in North America. I think they have uh, something like four or five licenses, something like that, in the states where uh, where they can operate online gambling. Um, they have also communicated. They are going through a strategic review currently. It's a publicly traded company, uh, Swedish Roots, um, and they are also looking to uh, to sell uh, at the moment. And as a bit of a curveball, it could be uh, as well interesting to to think about Kindred as an acquisition target as well for Stake, because not only is that kind of a way in into the regulated environment in North America, but it's also a, reg- a way in into the regulated environment in uh, Europe as well. Uh, Kindred have, have been they have been their pride has been essentially that they um, are looking to derive as much revenue as possible from regulated markets um, rather than kind of uh, pre-regulated or, or gray markets in, in Europe and elsewhere. And um, that also makes it an interesting um, discussion point here because this as a, as a, a lead up to this, to, to, put the, to put stake into context how big they are, uh, Financial Times recently reported that stake is the seventh largest gambling firm in the world based on revenue, not uh, EBITDA, but revenue, uh, which puts them bigger than DraftKings, for example, just in revenue. And then imagine the, the margins that they are currently uh, enjoying uh, outside of the regulation. It puts them in an insanely strong financial position. Rumors are uh, that they are generating something like $2 billion uh, GDR, 2 to $3 billion GDR a year. Um, and you, you would imagine that they, they, they would enjoy something like, um, you know, 30 to 50 percent uh, um, margins on that revenue, perhaps, which would then lead to an EBITDA of um, one billion dollar plus a year. Uh, so obviously an extremely financially strong uh, company that is uh, potentially now then looking to kind of flip the switch into the regulated environment. Um, because it is a very interesting move here, like if they would acquire a... North American sportsbook, uh, you would assume that the regulators uh, would uh, not allow them to offer uh, crypto solutions, uh, even if it's uh, by a subsidiary, for example, or something like that. You would assume that the due diligence is very straightforward uh, in, in, in that regard, that they won't be able to do that. So they would need to flip the switch completely in the US uh, and, and go fully regulated. Uh, it's very interesting, actually. I, I don't know, Lloyd. Um, um, if you have any further thoughts here on, on stake uh, in general and this kind of stra- strategic shift, perhaps they are perhaps they are recognizing that they can't operate outside of the regulation forever, you know, with the history of Black Friday and the 2000s and so on. Yeah, I think I might have lost you for a minute there, but I'm pretty sure I, I heard the, the question. I don't have 
uh, too many extended thoughts, and I want to make sure we leave time. I know you have other topics to get to. Uh, could Kindred make sense? Sure. Uh, I feel like when you say you are going to make a major acquisition to enter the U.S. market, uh, Kindred doesn't really come to mind as uh, being coherent to that particular language, but it doesn't mean it's not possible. Um, I think unquestionably, Stake will not allow any crypto MetaMask deposits from U.S. customers if and when they operationalize here. The question is, will U.S. regulators give Stake a license in the U.S. if they are still operating and allowing a crypto on-ramp for payments uh, in other uh, jurisdictions and generally carrying on and call it a semi or super regulated manner outside uh, of the U.S.? Um, but you're right. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. They're the three. They're a you know 300 pound gorilla in the room. They reportedly did 2.6 billion uh, in GGR last year compared to 2.2 billion. Uh, for DraftKings, uh, and, and they are a formidable player if they decide and find uh, a plausible way to, to start addressing consumers in the U.S. market. And uh, a closing idea, thought, uh, or rather on my end, look, as it pertains to this topic is, you know, when you talk about the U.S. regulators and what would they or wouldn't they allow, there's precedent in the past for gray market operators coming into the U.S. Uh, or gray market companies getting involved in the U.S. space and other international spaces. But generally, they took the approach of trying to clean things up before coming in. Even look at Entain, which, you know, before they got involved and did their deal with, with MGM, they had to clean up some of the things that they were doing in certain parts of the world in order to make that transaction happen. Whereas if Stake were to go out and make an acquisition, does that mean that they would siphon off the portion of their business that is quote unquote gray, which is virtually their entire business. So, you know, it would be really interesting yeah. to see how that unfolds. Now, look, you know, the US regulators, some of them that you speak to will say, look, we can't really police what goes on in, in, in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world. So as long as they're not doing anything that's gray within the US, then we're okay with it. Um, so it'd be just be really, really interesting to see based on the precedence of how some of the other folks and companies that are of significant size and scope have gone about cleaning up their acts before coming into the U.S. versus what stakes would do if, in fact, they pursue an acquisition. We shall see. We shall see. It certainly would be the biggest news of the year, more or less, if uh, if, if a big acquisition would come from stake and, and what it would uh, mean. Uh, I want to move on to, to the next uh, topic uh, here, something I'm quite curious about to just uh, discuss with you guys. Uh, not exactly a news story here, but um, just some thoughts that I want to share today. Um, you know, in the US, the, uh, the online sports betting and the online gambling environment is uh, consolidating. Uh, obviously, we saw that recently now with, uh, with Fanatics uh, acquiring points bet, which we are going to talk a little bit more about uh, in a little bit. Um, operators uh, are struggling, uh, whereas the kind of top four are enjoying a bigger and bigger market share. Uh, some of the suppliers are, are trying to enter the space but failing. Um, and it seems like the um, the space is consolidating and the bigger is getting bigger. And in that context, I'm really curious uh, to hear your thoughts as investors, uh, what that means for you guys. Uh, you know, Lloyd, obviously, um, with the Sharp, Sharp Alpha uh, Investments, uh, Sharp Alpha uh, Partners. Uh, oh, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm misquoting. Sharp Alpha Advisors. There we go. Third time's a charm. Um, and uh, Benji, you're an active investor in the space uh, as well, of course. Um, what, what does this... Uh, kind of environment mean to you guys now as as uh, funds? It must be um, 
uh, it must be challenging to some extent to find new opportunities in the startup landscape uh, if it's uh, if the space is consolidating in general like what is the vc's place in the online sports betting online gambling world today in north america and uh, do you feel it's becoming more and more challenging lloyd to uh, to find the right opportunities uh, and even from an lp perspective is it uh, becoming more difficult to kind of raise uh, funds funds from your side uh, that you can then invest into other companies uh, a lot to cover there. Let me see if I can touch on each of the questions you've asked, and then we can dive in, <laughs> into any of them in more detail. Uh, one important framing that I do think I often see lost or a point of nuance that I, I see not integrated into conversations like these is, is, is the fact that, yes, it is true that inflation and interest rates are a bit elevated and deal volumes in the venture space are down year over year. But if you want to talk aberrations, you want to talk about true statistical anomalies in the world of venture capital financing, 2021 was the aberration. Uh, things right now, when you zoom out, look actually pretty normal and orderly from a historical perspective. Every single indicator that we use to measure venture capital financing activity, deal velocity, deal volume, unicorns minted per month, price to earnings, price to sales ratios, EV to EBITDA multiples, you name it, reached absolute all-time highs, unprecedented levels in 2021. And while it certainly is a tough environment now, I think it feels a bit tougher to people who are consumed by a bit of recency bias and comparing the current environment to 2021, which really was never sustainable uh, and, and almost not reality, if you will, in the first place. Um, that said, in terms of finding opportunities in the space, uh, it definitely is a difficult time to be a mid-sized generalist fund. If you are Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia or Insight Partners, you're doing fine. If you're an ultra-specialized fund in a sector with strong secular tailwinds and who founders in the space recognize as being a premier name to have on a cap table, uh, you're also doing fine. But if you are just a generalist investor who is sort of in the middle sizing-wise, not quite a household name like Andreessen or Sequoia, uh, and trying to tag along to different deals in different spaces as you found the opportunities, I, I think it certainly is a lot tougher. Um, we can get back to startups and the startup funding raising ecosystem in a moment, but you asked the question about you know raising a, a, as a venture fund from LPs. And what I'll, I'll say is that it definitely is more difficult today to raise a fund, especially as a first-time manager, uh, than it was three years ago. Uh, but quite interestingly, if you ask certain investors, hey, are, are you interested in a venture fund today? They might say, uh, it's really tough for us to allocate to venture capital right now. And if you then follow up and say, well, when was it easy for you to allocate to venture capital? They will say something like, oh, well, it was easy for us in 2020 and 2021, which ironically were the worst times right. uh, possibly <laughs> ever to allocate to venture funds. And that maps onto this longstanding wisdom in the world of venture capital that when it is easy and enjoyable to be investing, it is a bad time to invest. And when it is more painful and uncomfortable and difficult to deploy capital, that is the best time to invest. Uh, and it brings up the classic Warren Buffett quote of being greedy when others are fearful. Uh, and I think that's sort of exactly the environment we are moving into. Yes, there is less LP capital available. Some LPs are just finding themselves inadvertently overweight to venture capital. Others see better risk-adjusted return in a 5% T-bill. Uh, but for investors that have an edge and that have proprietary deal flow and the ability to get into deals, um, 
you have a confluence of two really powerful forces right now that I think might make 2024 one of the best vintages in, in venture history. You have investor friendliness moving toward an all-time high. But at the same time, companies that previously were being incentivized by the market to optimize for growth and hype and salesmanship and press releases are now being incentivized to optimize for traction and execution and sustainable profit margins and unit economics. Uh, and so in theory, there should be this period we are entering where as again, either a top tier Andreessen or Sequoia type investor or someone more specialized in a, in a niche area, you're investing in companies at half the price that have twice the likelihood of a successful outcome. Um, and, and so I think the future is quite bright for the, the Lloyd Danzig's and Benji Cherniak's of the world, as well as for uh, the Sequoia's and, and Andreessen's of the world. And I'd say within our LP base, anecdotally, we have a split. We have some who are saying, hey, we're stepping back. We're not allocating heavily to venture at this time. But we have others who made their fortunes investing after the dot-com burst after the great financial crisis. And they're pushing all their chips on the table and saying, these are the exact environments in which we like to deploy capital behind a manager whom we trust as, as a steward of uh, that capital. So mixed bag for sure, lots of challenges out there, but important to contextualize that. I think it feels a lot more dire in relation to what we were experiencing only 18 months ago. All right, fair enough. Great summary, uh, Lloyd. And, and over to you, Bendil. I mean, what type of opportunities are you looking for in this environment today in online sports betting and, and um, uh, online gambling? I don't know if it's a question of looking for a specific type of opportunity in the sense that from an investment standpoint, I'm somewhat all over the map. But to some of Lloyd's points, you know, I think a real critical one now is that, you know, even a year ago, you had all of that hype from 2021, and then in 2022 was somewhat of a difficult year because the market had changed, but a lot of the entrepreneurs had, uh, kind of had difficulty accepting that new reality. But now that we're a year removed from that, I think that virtually everyone's on the same page. If you're a startup and you're kind of getting going in your, your, your organization, you know now that you need to take a practical approach, that the unit economics have to be sound, that you, you need to be focusing on bottom line EBITDA as opposed to strictly revenue targets. And you need to be more than just shiny press releases in order to execute and not just from a raising capital perspective, but from an M&A perspective as well. So I think that the companies that we're seeing now and, and the way in which the entrepreneurs are approaching it, you know, is a little bit more synergistic with where the market is. And to Lloyd's point, you know, I think that that's going to be sustainable into 2024, 2025 beyond it, because that's just what the, the new reality is, what the more realistic reality probably should have been all along. So I think that puts us in a pretty good spot from an investment standpoint, heading into the latter part of 2023 and beyond. And the other tailwind alongside that, that I think is beneficial is that you know, we spoke about this last time, but M&A is heating up, right? So yep. you have that convergence as well. And as we see deals in our space starting to happen, that lends itself well to being able to point to those deals and, you know, for, for the venture capital firms to, to talk to their LPs and for those LPs to continue anting up because they can see that for a number of companies, be it ones that they're involved with or other, that M&A is kind of coming back to the forefront and that all of these challenging times are just cycles that we have to work our way to work our ways through as we allow the cream to continue to rise to the crop to the top rather. And, and I would just add, if I if I could, you know, 
I think there's a lot of, and in, in some ways, well-placed fears of what at the most extreme people sometimes refer to as an impending startup extinction event or, or, or just perhaps, you know, more timidly, uh, a, you know, a, a massive challenge for startups that may, you know, have to fall out of, of the market. And what does that mean for the broader ecosystem? And I, I think an analogy, again, just to go back to my point about framing, sometimes I feel like people talk as if, uh, I'll use a weather analogy here, as if we had good weather for 15 years, and then suddenly 18 months ago, it started raining all day, every day. But actually what happened is we had mixed weather, variable weather, although improving from, let's say, 2009 to 2019. And then out of nowhere, for two years, it was sunny and no clouds in the sky and the perfect temperature all day, every day. And now we're back to having mixed variable weather again. And so unsurprisingly, the companies who during the sunny days were built to only sell sunglasses and suntan lotion and only sell from outdoor locations without ever having a permanent fortified storefront are going to have to very quickly adapt to the new climate where we have mixed weather and some days are rainy and some days are sunny and some days are cloudy, or they're going to have to fall out of the market, perhaps because there wasn't really a place for them anyway. Uh, and so I think that is something that we will see. Uh, companies that were purpose built and only really made sense in a zero interest rate environment where the cost of capital was low and other artifacts of that 2021 era, uh, it makes sense that they would struggle to find footing and that the investors that raised money to back them would struggle to find footing in the current climate. But that does not at all take away from the inherent need for innovation uh, and the opportunities to back great founders solving important problems in industries that are growing rapidly. Well, at least um, if we turn this analogy and um, we, we translate uh, the industry into which country we are talking about uh, climate-wise, uh, uh, fortunately, uh, the industry is not uh, here in Sweden, which uh, uh, has a famous saying where summer is the best day of the year. Uh, so fortunately, we're not there yet, at least. So that, that's a positive uh, side. But Lloyd, if you, if you look forward uh, into 2024 and 2025, how do you think it, this, uh, the startup landscape and opportunities will play out? I mean, I'm asking also from my own perspective here, right? As a conference organizer, um, we organize ex exhibition conferences. You know, so we also need to look at who are the potential exhibitors, uh, which are often you know, companies in their kind of younger um, uh, younger years, let's let's say, uh, if we compare the landscape in the U in the U.S. to Europe, for example, uh, we have a much more limited space uh, in in the U.S. due to the fact that there just isn't that many operators, let's say, which are obviously the customers that supports the whole uh, ecosystem. But but again, like if you look into 2024, 2025, like do, do you see uh, how, how do you see the space developing overall when you when you think of the startup landscape uh, specifically? Um, I don't know. There's a lot of ways I guess I could answer that. Uh, one thing I would point out is, is that while it is true that there is a consolidating number of B2C sportsbook and casino operators that could be potential buyers of startups, they are not the only uh, potential buyers out there. Benji and I were involved uh, early on in Betcha, uh, which was a daily fantasy company that was acquired by Vivid Seats, which is a, a StubHub competitor, a ticketing company that wanted to cross-pollinate its user base to and from ticketing uh, and sports betting, not dissimilar from the sort of one-stop shop that Fanatics is, is trying to put together. You look at a company like Endeavor that historically had very little, if anything, to do with sports betting, but then went and bought OpenBet and IMG Arena. Uh, and even, you know, Barstool was historically not a sports betting company, but was ultimately acquired by a casino operator. So I do think an important theme uh, as relates to exit opportunities is 
the convergence of all these different consumer behaviors under the umbrella that I often refer to as competitive entertainment, sports betting, casino, lottery, ticketing, merchandise, collectibles, digital collectibles, fractional ownership, uh, even potentially retail stock and uh, and, and crypto trading and and things of that nature. Um, I think that overall, you know, the startup landscape has some incredible founders building incredible products that will allow this industry to expand the size of the total addressable market perhaps more importantly, will increase the profit margins uh, and and hold rates. Uh, Think about products that are driving profitability right now. Same game parlays and micro betting uh, almost entirely have been provided uh, by startups that were launched in the last uh, few years uh, and now are completely revolutionizing the income statements and the hold rates of of some of these operators. Uh, We'll see a lot of technology that makes the, the business more sustainable and durable, whether it's the responsible gaming side, payments, KYC, AML, affordability checks, fraud prevention, uh, things of that nature, uh, and expansion into new geographies. Latin America is, is the hot area of focus right now, Brazil in particular, as well as the rest. Uh, but over a longer time horizon, I think India, uh, potentially Japan, and even admittedly further down the line, the Middle East uh, are, are areas where we will see continued real money gaming expansion and all of that will be enabled by technology solutions, many of which are provided by startups that are in their incubation phases today. I would I would agree with that point in the sense that all of these, many of these companies, when you look at the same game parlays and the micro market, micro betting, they're still in their early phases and early stages and the expansions geographically you allude to is a very real dynamic. But pointing squarely back at the US market, I think one of the themes to look for as we go to 2024 and 2025 is is the growth of iCasino and 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 gradually we expect to see some additional states anteing up and and coming into the fray it's taking longer than people expected and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that that we can get into on a separate podcast but you know if and as we see more movement in that space you know we're already seeing some interesting startups you look at companies like betty as an example but there's also a number of them on the b2b side that are kind you know, providers of casino-related games, technology, and and I think that that could play a, a factor in the startup landscape as we look at the next few years ahead. Speaking of uh, acquisition and 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 the future, um, moving on to uh, the next story here, which is uh, the fanatics and DraftKings drama that uh, unfolded here um, recently. Uh, so fanatics obviously have been looking to launch online sports betting. This is uh, an uh, open, uh, not even a secret. This has been an indication and and communicated openly by Fanatics. And um, the industry has been waiting to see which uh, operator they will be acquiring. And um, recently Fanatics made the uh, bid of $150 million uh, to, um, uh, to, to acquire uh, Oh, now I lose the, now I lose the, help help me guys uh, to acquire Point bet, US. Point bet. Yes, there we go. Um, US, US assets, not not the whole company, but uh, exactly, the US exactly. assets, right? The US assets, 150 million dollars, and and out of nowhere, from left field, DraftKings countered that bid, uh, seemingly with no real reason, uh, but they countered with a 195 million dollar bid, uh, to which then uh, Fanatics had to up their own bid to 225 million, which is 50 percent higher than the original bid, in order to close the deal. Uh, Michael Rubin, the uh, CEO of Fanatics, uh, was uh, quite livid over 
what uh, what DraftKings um, communicated uh, here and said that uh, uh, the only reason why DraftKings would uh, would would make this bid was to kind of block the uh, the acquisition or to make it more expensive for 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 fanatics. Um, Michael Rubin explained that uh, to kind of complete this deal. Uh, it would cost DraftKings around half a billion dollar, which is uh, a lot of their balance sheet, uh, of course. There, um, I'm quite curious about uh, about this uh, unfolding uh, drama, Lloyd. Like, uh, do, do you agree with um, uh, with Michael Rubin here that uh, that DraftKings' only reason to make the bid of PointBet US uh, was essentially to uh, to 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 make it more difficult for fanatics to enter the online space in the first place? I do have a lot of thoughts, but I feel like I've been taking the first crack at each of the answers. So let me let Benji maybe take All the right. first crack so I don't steal his thunder as I probably was previously. Uh, and then I'll build on the I'll, 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 In the case in, that Benji misses anything, I'll... I'll I, 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 yeah, absolutely. No, so my well, bad. You're, you're next to me, Heloid, in the window. So like, I'm like passing over the ball here. But, but Benji, let's, um, let's, let's jump over to you on this question. Sure. So, uh, you know... First of all, you know, Michael Rubin being infuriated by the DraftKings approach on it and seeing that they had no reason to to to, to come in with a bid, uh, they did have every reason to come in, which was to drive the price up for a competitor, which, and, and it seems to have worked famously if in fact that was their reason. I, I kind of feel as though, you know, Michael Rubin and the points bet team had an opportunity here to stand their ground. And if, if in fact they viewed this as a ploy in which DraftKings was strictly looking to drive the price up, which seems to have some logic to it because really, you know, it just makes so much more sense as an acquisition for Fanatics than it does for DraftKings. DraftKings doesn't need the technology. They don't need the operational aptitude and know-how. They don't need the human resources. You know, these are all things that the Fanatics team, you know, they inherit a platform, they inherit a trading, not to mention all the market access that, that Fanatics is in dire need of. And of course, DraftKings already has all that market access. So on the surface, it doesn't really seem to be any reason for DraftKings to have fronted the offer other than feeling correctly that they could drive the price up for Fanatics. Um, I almost wish that Michael Rubin and the Fanatics guys had taken the approach to standing their ground. And saying to the points back guys, look, we came in with our offer. Our offer was real. Our offer was credible. The offer will get done. The deal will get done. We think this is an end run. If you guys really think that you can get a deal done with DraftKings under those terms and at that dollar amount, go at it and then come back to us if it doesn't work. I kind of wish they had taken that approach. But on the flip side to that, we all recognize that the 150 price tag was somewhat of a basement bargain price tag. There was no other bidder it looked like. And you know, uh, Fanatics didn't really have uh, Fanatics points bet USA points bet didn't really have any other choice than to accept the offer because it was the only offer on the table. So the 150 was probably too low to begin with. So you know, it ending up at the 225 mark is probably more practical as to where it should have been all along. But I think there was an opportunity for points bet to uh, uh, or for Fanatics rather to take a different approach and put their feet in the stand. And I think it might have worked out for them if they had. Yeah, right, I think that all all makes sense to, to build on it. Um, I, I agree. I, I don't think there's any particular stake in uh, in a business perspective to put into you know Michael Rubin allegedly being livid. Uh, it, it has come to surface that there is some sort of interpersonal conflict potentially between Michael Rubin and Jason Robbins that goes back a couple of years. And I heard a, a really funny off the record. Uh, example of some fallout there that I don't think I could uh, share while we're recording here, but maybe in the post-production room I'll mention later on. Um, I, I think 
my starting point for thinking about this deal is what Benji sort of ended with, which, which is that uh, it was quite well known that, that PointsBet, PointsBet US specifically, was in a very dire position. Uh, they would have had to raise a ton of capital from investors by issuing new shares that would have diluted everyone if they did not get a deal done here. Uh, and so the 150 price almost certainly was an artifact of, of the lack of negotiating leverage uh, that PointsBet had at the time. Uh, I agree with Benji's points that it seems that Fanatics would derive far more value uh, from a point spec acquisition than a DraftKings would. However, just to play devil's advocate, um, Intain is reportedly buying Angstrom for $200 million. Uh, DraftKings acquiring points bet, getting Bannock, and blocking a competitor for $5 million less uh, seems like, you know, maybe on a relative basis, you know, not such an unjustifiable price. Uh, and I, to that point, I would add defensive deal making and blocking competitors has been, you know, uh, one of the most common tools in the M&A toolkit for quite a while. So it's not that it would be unprecedented. Some people argued that DraftKings offer for Intain for $22 billion a couple of years ago uh, was somewhat defensive uh, and intended to stymie MGM specifically. And, and I think DraftKings has a bit of a history of defensive deal making uh, and certainly many other companies uh, do as well. Uh, I think the 225 price probably does come somewhere closer to some sense of uh, of, of fair market value. Uh, and while I do appreciate from a deal-making perspective Benji's suggestion or wish that they had held their line, I think one of the complicating factors is that, again, without knowing anything specific or any, any non-public information, it seems that Fanatic's plans and rollout have not been going quite as smoothly as they had hoped. They initially said they would be live in every state by NFL season uh, of this year. Uh, they were acquiring the Amelco source code that they were going to repurpose for their own needs. Then they were trying to buy, you know, bet parks, uh, now looking to, to points bet. Uh, and so, you know, without knowing if truly what's going on in the inside, I only wonder uh, how desperate might fanatics have been to make sure to get the points bet deal done if they want any hopes of going live according to the go-to-market strategy and roadmap that they currently have. Uh, and if they did not get that deal done, what would their alternatives have been? Would they have been able to get to market in a critical number of states without uh, a major acquisition this year? I don't know the answers to those questions, but I imagine they were weighing on the negotiation process and Fanatic's decision to increase their bid, which again, although it was a 50% premium from the initial bid, it still is less than 1% of Fanatic's market cap. They most recently raised at a $31 billion valuation, and they have a massive you know, merchandise business that, that throws off a, a ton of cash. So I think all in all, if you ask me in a vacuum, does it make sense for Fanatic's to pay 225 for points bet US, given where we currently stand? Uh, I, I think the answer to that question is yes. Benji, will, uh, will Fanatic's, uh, a quick answer here, will Fanatic's be one of the top four operators in the next uh, three years, let's say? short answer i'll go with no interesting interesting it's we'll, uh... that that is like the, the million or, or billion dollar question um i don't know my sense is that it hinges on whether consumers truly value a one-stop shop experience where you place bets and then get money that allows you to buy free jerseys and tickets and things like that and whether fanatics can deliver the product experience uh, that capitalizes on that consumer need if it is truly there. If either one of those things is not the case, if it ends up that people want to bet on sports at their sports book and buy jerseys from a merchandise retailer and buy tickets from a ticketing retailer, 
or if it ends up that people do want that all in one place, but that it's just too hard to create a product that seamlessly cross sells you between all of those, I think it becomes difficult to see fanatics in the top four. If both of those things do end up being the case, uh, then perhaps uh, they have a shot, but it still is, is, is not guaranteed. That, that was the longer answer. But here, here's the thing, right? Now, and, and, and guys, you know, look, Pierre, we also said within three years, it's going to take them a year plus just to get, all, to get their footing together as it pertains to getting it, to, getting it together with, with points bets and kind of integrating that asset and figuring it out in terms of where their platform fits in alongside what they're doing with the Amelco platform, um, internalizing the Bannock folks who are super talented, figuring out the human resource challenge of migrating some of the talented people that are already on board at Fanatics and integrating that with some of the super talented people that, that, that call points bet their home and just bringing all that together and building the house. Like that's going to be in and of itself uh, a year to a two year process. So it's going to take a little bit longer, I think, for them to, to get to whatever their peak will be within this space. Uh, three years is, a, I think, a short time frame for Great that. Points. Speaking of uh, Challenger Brand, I want to jump over to the last point of the day, which is uh, I want to do a little bit of a deep dive on underdog fantasy uh, today. Last uh, time in the first episode, we did better um, with a good analysis of the company and its potential uh, future. And today I want to talk about uh, underdog fantasy. So, you know, Jer Jeremy Levine, the CEO and founder of Underdog Fantasy, has a really uh, great and interesting history in uh, American uh, um, fantasy sports and also uh, online sports betting. His um, his company was acquired by FanDuel uh, a couple of years ago, and he was set to become kind of the uh, the CEO of uh, FanDuel US uh, there for a while. It didn't play out, and instead Jeremy then founded uh, Underdog Fantasy, which has uh, become one of the main players on the uh, on the fantasy sports scene today. Now um, Jeremy and Underdog have communicated that they are eventually flipping the switch uh, and launching online sports betting as well. Um, I'm really curious um, how, this will, uh, how this will play out. Uh, now, again, uh, it's uh, proving to become very challenging uh, to stick around in the online sports betting uh, place uh, in, in North America as an operator. And, um, you know, Bendy, let's start with you for this one again. Um, uh, do, do you feel that Underdog has a good opportunity to succeed in this really difficult space? And um, what in that case would make them different, uh, let's say, than the other players? Well, the first thing is we haven't, you know, to my knowledge, we haven't seen this playbook before. And what I mean by this playbook before is, is taking a fantasy asset that's built up a credible fantasy product with a significant following and a meaningful user base and taking that group and then converting it to sportsbook, you know, uh, I, I guess you can say that we've seen it as it pertains to like the fan duels and DraftKings when they kind of got going. But you know, to to, to the, the acquisition of the Goat platform and 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 bringing it in and to kind of marry the two together, because I think what Jeremy's looking to do is to create kind of uh, uh, an all-encompassing kind of all-in-one company where the sportsbook and fantasy experience live kind of within one household so to speak um and look you know the the state-by-state -state, uh licensing piece and and then you know we're not even live yet with sportsbook yet on the underdog side so it, it kind of remains to be seen how it will play out as it pertains to the product side one of the things that jeremy and his team have said is that even from a sportsbook standpoint they want to create some product differentiation um and and 
you know, we haven't really seen much from them as it pertains to what that differentiation will be. I think they're keeping a lot of their cars close to the vest. You know, they're not really stating when they'll be live with Sportsbook, to my knowledge, and they're not really indicating what the, the true product differentiators will be. So I think there's a lot to uncover here that will be uncovered as we see it unfold in real time in, in the months and years ahead. Yeah, I think uh, those are all, all great points. You know, I, I don't know if there is anyone who will successfully crack the top three, top four, top five in market share, whatever you want to call it in this space. Uh, and there's really only a handful of challenger brands that have any chance at all. Uh, and some of them include multi-billion dollar companies like Fanatics and Stake. Uh, but as, as far as, you know, venture-backed startups go, Underdog is certainly on my very short list of companies that have a chance to disrupt the incumbents, if it is even possible to do so. It, it may just be that without the economies of scale of an MGM, FanDuel, or DraftKings, it is impossible to gain share. But we will see what better and Underdog in particular uh, you know, try to do in, in that regard. Um, Jeremy, probably above all else, uh, is a product guy uh, with a really keen eye and almost religious focus on really intuitive, easy to use products that delight consumers and that bring something different to the table. That's what they did when they really popularized Best Ball, which is their fantasy product that they brought to market several years ago. And to Benji's point, although we don't know any specifics, it seems Jeremy has some similar product differentiation tricks up his sleeve uh, as relates to offering a different twist on uh, the conventional sports betting experience. Uh, the other thing that I have come to, to really, really deeply respect uh, about Jeremy is his ability to know what his strengths, know areas where he is not as strong, and hire the right people to solve all the problems around him. And if you ever ask Jeremy, and he's been asked this and answered in the way I will mimic here on, on stage many times, if you ever ask him, how do you decide what everyone at your company is going to do every day? What he says is, I don't. I hire people much smarter than me for all the things we need to get done. And they tell me what they're going to do and what the five or 10 people who are reporting to them are going to do every day. Uh, and that's an outlook and a philosophy that I think is the right one and that I have a great respect for in a founder. Uh, what I have even more respect for is the ability to actually go out and execute and hire the caliber of people that Jeremy has succeeded in bringing on. And so, uh, again, it is not at all a foregone conclusion that anyone will chip away meaningfully at the market share of the market leaders. But you combine Jeremy's history as an entrepreneur, his ability to raise capital, his incredible eye for product uh, and ability to hire top tier people in all of the areas where the company needs uh, to grow. Uh, it de he definitely is should be on everyone's short list uh, as a potential you know serious disruptor in the space and someone who can roll out some products that might really change the landscape. And and I'll add to that, Lloyd. You know, uh, you talk about Jerry being a product guy. No question about it. And his eye for talent and hiring people that have the qualifications. And uh, you know, he's 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 fantastic as it pertains to building out his team. And he's got some great people on board. No, absolutely no doubt about that. The one thing that Jeremy often says is that, and I agree with him, is that the U.S. kind of sportsbook offerings that we see today uh, generally all mirror one another and generally all come from the European vein, meaning in many instances, the technology that is backing these products, uh, the platforms were, were, were founded in Europe and built for a product that, that was you know, geared to that part of the world and, and to a previous time frame in many instances. And, and that what he wants to do is kind of introduce a product that's more U.S. specific, 
that's geared more to the stop-start nature of American sports. Again, we haven't seen the evidence yet on the sportsbook side of what all these products will look like, but there's no denying the success of best ball. And then to your point earlier uh, in our previous podcast, Lloyd, you know, we talked about uh, Joey leaving being a great entrepreneur and somebody that you wouldn't want to bet against. I can tell you that Jeremy Levine is, is a fantastic entrepreneur, not just within the sports betting space, but has this tequila brand as well. And with some pretty good uh, high-profile partners that are involved in that. Fantastic when it comes to raising capital, graded hiring. Definitely not somebody would, I would want to be betting against as well uh, in this front. Yeah, that, that's my perception as well. Uh, Jeremy, uh, again, comes across as a, as a leader that you, uh, that you want to work for, uh, right? Like Kind of like this gravitational field that pulls in this t- kind of talent, which is really difficult when you build a business and you're up against the DraftKings and FanDuel's uh, who are much stronger um, uh, finance than, than what you are. It's like, how do you, how do you get that talent to come to you rather than to the incumbents, uh, essentially? And uh, to your point, uh, Bendy, um, uh, that is something I took note of as well, that, uh, uh, that Jeremy has communicated that uh, it, it kind of like the American kind of mindset in sports betting is much more player and statistic-centric rather than the European traditional sports betting players, much more team-centric. And he talks about this as being like a key differentiator in how uh, Americans like to, um, uh, uh, how, they, how they like to operate uh, the, a sports betting product. But it sounds to me a little bit almost like Joey Levy is better. It sounds almost like uh, he talks about, um, Jeremy Levine also talks about instant gratification. So it almost sounds like it's like a micro betting type-esque uh, product that, uh, that he is looking to, uh, uh, to build here. I don't know what you, uh, what you think about that, Lloyd. My thoughts are just that while, especially now, it does seem better and underdog are, are something of competitors or future competitors, uh, Jeremy and Joey have been friends for a long time and spend quite a bit of time together. Uh, and undoubtedly have rubbed off on one another in terms of their philosophies on, on the you know outset on the way the market is developing. Uh, and I think you know unquestionably instant gratification, minimization of decision fatigue uh, are some of the most common topics across all consumer tech right now. Uh, and it makes sense that two of the younger, uh, ambitious challenger brands in the U.S. sports betting space would be trying to bring to the space features that we have seen evolve in the remainder of the consumer tech ecosystem, but not yet seen, uh, you know, gain a stronghold here. So I don't know how close or far the products will end up being together. Uh, but I certainly think Jeremy and, and Joey probably have had some influence on each other. And it would not at all surprise me if both of them have come to similar conclusions, even, you know, completely separately and, and in the absence of any collaboration. Lord, I thought you were going to go out on a limb there and predict that uh, the companies merge in 2026 <laughs> or something. Yeah, I mean, there are some similarities in the viewpoint, but I think where the, I think where the biggest similarity is, is that they both view the current sports spec experience as it's fantastic for what it is, but I think they both view it that there's another demographic out there that maybe isn't being as tar- targeted in as meaningful a way as it could be by the current experience, and they're building something that might be tailored more to a combination of an emerging generation and, and the more casual sports better than, uh, than what the current sports book experience uh, provides. So I think that the mindset is similar, but the way in which they're going about it is different. Uh, but there, there are some similarities for sure. Final question for you here uh, today, Bungie. Um, who do you think would win in a hypothetical uh, scenario where uh, fanatics enter the market and the better and uh, underdog fantasy join forces in the super challenger here? 
you're asking me very hypothetical, hypothetical versus a, <laughs> the hypothetical question of fanatics versus a combination of the two companies yes, yes that's it that's my final question um, it's a very difficult one but Essentially, essentially yeah, what I'm asking, Bundy, is uh, two extremely talented founders, uh, or essentially talent uh, that are entering the market hyper-aggressively, two young founders that are trying to build something incredible versus uh, a, um, a, a, a company that is, has much more legacy, but also uh, has a much stronger uh, balance sheet and, um, uh, and so on. So look, I, first of all, I think there's room for all of these people to succeed, right? Whether it be all of them independently or if the other two were to hypothetically combine, I think there's room for success for all these guys. It's a big market, a big space. It's going to continue to grow as more states open up. And, you know, to the point of underdog, they also have the fantasy angle uh, within it. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that if you look longer term, there may potentially be some legislation that benefits them in that capacity also, right? But I do think that, you know, when you look at the current incumbents, there's going to be some sort of a brand, whether it's a better, whether it's an underdog, whether it's a fanatics, whether it's the 15 year old sitting in his basement who, who comes up with something different from all of the above that will penetrate the marketplace in a meaningful way by attracting an emerging demographic that 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 sees things in a different way. So I think they all have the right idea. It's just a question of which one will be uh, be more successful. But uh, yeah, I do think that what what better and what uh, uh, and what underdog are doing is is the right approach for a venture back to challenging brand. I thought you were going to ask who would we bet on if there's a fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> uh, and even though Elon weighs a lot more, I've seen some books put up like Zuckerberg minus one sixty, uh, and I think those odds make about sense to me. I, I would probably bet on Zuck at minus one fifty to. Uh, outlast Elon Musk in some sort of physical MMA cage match or hand-to-hand -hand combat. But alas, that is not actually the question you asked. So, you know, uh, there you go. <laughs> but what about uh, Michael Rubin versus uh, Jason Robbins? Uh, 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 more juicy details on that once we, uh, once we stop the right, recording here. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. In, in a hypothetical MMA fight I'm talking <laughs> about here. But yeah, yeah. Anyway. No comment. <laughs> no comment. Guys. Thank you so much for uh, the second episode here of Vested Interest. It's been great as per usual. Uh, I'm going to join my friends here behind me, who is currently doing a barbecue, and uh, enjoy the rest of the evening uh, here. But great to see you both. Um, have a good rest of the day over there, and we'll see you next month. Thank you so much. Thank thanks for having us. Bye, guys.